Morning, everyone. As, as you know, Nate and Mary structured the, um, the period between Christmas and Easter to go through um, a period of joy, a period of preparation for Jesus, and now we're going to look at, um, and we have started looking at, the encounters that Jesus has, the interactions that Jesus has with others. And this is one of those encounters. Is the microphone working or shall I switch to... Before we begin, I'd like to um, read you a small text from uh, chapter 4 in Hebrews to introduce Jesus, essentially. I know that sounds obvious, but just um, pay attention for a second. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. So this Jesus is the overarching theme of the passage, and the encounter is the encounter of individuals with Jesus. And as we look at this passage, there's an obvious encounter that is probably in everyone's mind, the encounter of the woman with Jesus, but there are really multiple interactions, multiple encounters taking place in that passage. There's the obvious encounter, then there's the encounter of Jesus and the Pharisee, the encounter of the Jesus and the onlookers, because the way Luke sets the scene, it's almost like a play, and the onlookers are giving commentary of what's going on in front of them. So we see this interaction at multiple levels, and then Luke is inviting us into that interaction. But before we even begin at the text, which starts off with one of the Pharisees inviting Jesus to come eat, we must understand that there is a, there's a background to this. There's obviously the Pharisees' attention has been grabbed by Jesus, and at the same time, the woman's attention has been grabbed by Jesus. So what's been, what's been going on in the run-up to this? Jesus has begun his ministry, and we can see that sort of gradually unfolding and begins to unfold with very large crowds in chapter 5 of Luke. So we see Jesus standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing around him. And then... We, um, we find uh, Jesus healing people. He heals a leper. He heals a paralyzed individual. So many crowds are there to drop in through a roof. Um, and then it builds up again and again and again in that, in that vein until you get to what um, Luke's parallel passage of the Sermon on the Mount is, which he calls the Sermon on the Plain. It depends how big the mount was and how flat it was. And there you have a large multitude of, of people pressing in. And throughout this, you, you see the in, sort of an interplay of um, 
people who agree with what he's saying, people who are mesmerized by him, and people who are critiquing him. So that is the background to when we get to this setting that we've looked at today. Because here we have a Pharisee, a sinful woman, which um, is Luke's euphemism for a prostitute, and that sort of hyper-religious, hyper-self-righteous versus completely contrite. And that is the, um, the crash that Luke is going to bring within this text to see where do you stand. He's going to ask, there's an underlying question that Luke is, is asking. So initially, let's, um, let's go through this and sort of build out the story to see what's going on. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. I slowed down at reclined because I want you to visualize the scene properly. Um, the Pharisee's house would have had an indoor section and then a walled courtyard. So where this table is laid would be a, a low table around this high, probably oblong, in the courtyard. The guests would come in to the courtyard and they would be reclining at table. So visualize any film you've seen where you've seen Romans eating. So their left elbow, how rude, would be on the table. They'd be slightly diagonally out. Their bare feet sticking out, out there. So if you had an oblong table, you have a sea of feet going around the table. So when we later come across the woman approaching Jesus, don't think she went under a table to get to his feet. Jesus was diagonally out, elbow here, feet there, as was every other guest. And he would have been at the head of the table alongside the Pharisee. So they're all reclining at table with feet out. Then the outer courtyard would have had the so-called commentators. So the other individuals, the crowds, whenever a religious leader like, the, like a Pharisee would have invited a rabbi, which he probably thought Jesus was, to come and speak, it would, in a sense, be open house. So the townspeople would know that there's a guest of honor there, and bo both out of curiosity and for the Pharisee, the self-aggrandizement, look, this person is eating at my house, it would have been opened. So people would just congregate on the margins to look at the table in the middle where people were having their supper and to hear what the rabbi was saying. So that's the scene where, uh, where we are at the moment. And suddenly, into this scene, crashes the sinful woman. And it's, um, it's then very vividly explained by Luke. Um, she has brought an alabaster jar full of perfume. The perfume would have been some form of nard. Um, and alabaster jars were little jars with a long neck that would have been sealed with a perfume inside them. And what used to happen is on uh, a major occasion that demanded use of the perfume, they crack the, the, uh, the alabaster jar, and that's it. You have single-use perfume. Now, if we look at the Gospel of John, where in a different context, a similar occurrence happens, but this time not by a sinful woman, but a similar occurrence, Judas Iscariot comments that, my goodness, I wish that lady hadn't done it because the perfume and the alabaster jar would have cost 300 denarii. 
So that's what this costs. And the significance there is that one denarius is one day's wage. So this woman has basically broken off the neck of this bottle and poured perfume worth a year's wage onto Jesus. So there's a massive outpouring of love by this woman towards Jesus. And then we see, um, uh, we see some uh, bizarre wording and, and how, um, uh, how Luke explains this. So he says, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with, his te- with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, anointed them with perfumed oil. It's verb after verb after verb after verb in one sentence. Stood, wept, wiped, uh, kissed, etc., etc. So there, is, there are too many verbs in one given sentence. And what, um, what, what he's trying to do is to unfold every move that the woman has made, uh, much, as if the, um, much as if the onlookers were watching and describing it. So point by point by point, he narrows in to what, it, what the interaction that's happening there. And it's a very moving interaction, not in the sense, well, it's moving in both senses of the word, but it's, it's moving. There's momentum in that interaction. That's why you get verb after verb after verb being poured out by Luke at that. It's, it's kind of, people are aghast at the war going, oh my goodness, she's, she's done this, then she's done that, then she's done that. And that's the kind of the, the crescendo that is, that is building up. And he, um, he then looks at Simon, who is a Pharisee, who would have thought at... Um, uh, Pharisees believed in a form of separationism. So if someone was unrighteous, by, in their view, by touching that unrighteous individual, they could be contaminated. And by way of contamination, they would be unable to go into the temple courts to do their sacrifices, to do their form of worship. So the way they would safeguard their righteousness is to draw back, draw away from anyone unrighteous. So that is... Um, so we see this event going along, and then Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a, again, euphemistically, sinner. And then a very interesting, so he's thinking this to himself. And then a very interesting thing happens, because, and he's thinking this, and in his thoughts is challenging the veracity of who Jesus is. But bizarrely, say you're thinking something now, and I turn around, look at you, so Jesus answered him. It's as if the man was speaking to Jesus, but he hadn't. He was thinking all these thoughts, and Jesus turns around and answers him his thoughts. So nothing was vocalized by Simon, and Jesus, bang, answers it. So if you're doubting his sort of Jesus's, at the very least, prophetic status, the fact that he overheard your thoughts and answered is rattling to, to Simon. So that is um, Luke's choice of words are, ver- are very interesting here. And then he tells Simon that he has something to tell him. And he tells a parable of two debtors who owed money to a loan shark, essentially, uh, what's going on there. Um, one owed 50 and one owed 500 denarii, and we've looked at how much a denarius costs. So 50, 
50 days wages, 500. We're looking at approximately, if they work the six-day week, 20 months' worth of wages. So Jesus is intentionally making this a big amount. And what the, um, uh, what the moneylender does is he cancels that debt. And then Jesus asks Simon, who would love him more, essentially? And then Simon gets the right answer in Jesus' view that the one who was forgiven the greater debt would love more. So, and that is the nub of the issue here. So this, what we have is uh, a woman who's come in so outpouring in love, weeping, and then weeping so much that her tears wet Jesus' feet and there was no towel, so she wiped with her hair. And so Jesus is then turning around and explaining what has just happened to the rest of the onlookers. So, and also drawing a distinction in what common courtesy of the time would have been versus what the woman did. So common courtesy of the time with uh, individuals coming for supper, they'd have walked along dusty roads, you would have had water and a servant or the host himself, or at least enabling with water at the entrance of the courtyard for the feet to be washed. Simon hadn't done that. Simon should have done the equivalent of a modern-day handshake, i.e., the individual comes in front, you kiss on both sides. Um, that is still something that's done in the Middle East when someone walks into a house. So he didn't do that. And if someone was very famous and they were coming to speak, you'd um, give them an olive oil-based aftershave. So some anointing of oil for them to sort of refresh themselves on arrival. So no water, no kiss, no oil. What's she done? Water equals tears, towel to dry them, kissed his feet, and anointed them. So a contrast is being drawn there between the common courtesies of the time that were not administered to Jesus on his arrival and what she did. And Jesus then uh, expands this and, and, and says that uh, essentially he makes the point that her sins are forgiven and therefore she loves much. The um, Revised English Bible does an excellent translation there um, and, and, and sort of says it quite clearly. Her great love proves that her many sins have been forgiven. Where little has been forgiven, little love is shown. So it's not that she did all these things and therefore Jesus forgave. She had already, she, um, and I, we do not know, the text doesn't say, but in the multiple um, uh, settings where crowds had gathered around Jesus, one, one would assume that she'd heard the message and wanted to come and hear the message again in that courtyard. And so there already had been uh, a transformation in the woman. So she knew she was forgiven, therefore she loved. The love, the outpouring of love, was the evidence of the prior forgiveness. So Jesus um, turns around again, and now he shows divine authority, which uh, by saying to her, your sins are forgiven. And that, we see the outer courtyard people again, saying, how could he do this? This is a common theme in Luke. It's a common theme in John, where Jesus does things that only God can do, forgiving sins. 
He did this a couple of pages earlier when the paralyzed man who was dropped, uh, dropped in and he healed them. He, didn't, he said, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. So he keeps doing this and he keeps causing a stir when, um, when he does this. And just um, to make it absolutely clear, he authoritatively declares at the end to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. So that's the setting, that's the story that has, um, that has taken place here. So we see that, but then we have to ask the question, this is Jesus interacting like that. How are we interacting with each other when it comes to forgiveness? Forgiveness is, is, a, is, a, is a very large theme in the Bible. And um, at two levels, interaction with each other, horizontal level, and then essentially salvation is one big act of forgiveness. Humanity as a whole, God, individuals who make up humanity coming into relationship with God. And the only way that relationship occurs is through forgiveness, is through the initiative of God. So, um, going horizontal, human interactions first. Uh, we see in Matthew 18, in sort of a, um, sort of a conversation that everyone's familiar with, that um, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, I tell you, but 77 times, or in some translations, 70 times seven. What's that wholeness number of seven that's being given as a multiple is essentially Jesus saying, infinite times, you must forgive the other. And we also um, pray the Lord's Prayer quite regularly. And I'll go in Luke's rendition, but it's the same in, um, in Matthew. We ask God to forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And we often say that quite we're quite happy to say, forgive us our sins, are we actually able to say the next clause, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us? And it's a question that um, I'd like to open up to you. What is forgiveness? When we see an injustice happen, and you see it on the news, and you see someone being interviewed, and something clearly unjust has happened to that person, and they stand there saying, I want justice. Justice is very good. God is judge. God is a judge of justice. But is, is that in the, and I don't, but be very, I would caution to be very careful. Is the justice we are looking for vengeance? Or is the justice justice? Because the, the heart can seek the justice while forgiving. So it's, it's very interesting what the mindset at that moment would be? Is it a vindictive seeking of justice? Or is it a having forgiven seeking justice? And so it, it can go within those two parameters. 
And the, the mind, when God looks at the heart, the heart has to be in a place of forgiveness. Whilst at the same time, justice can take place. So when we are seeking justice, it's not a vengeful justice. Forgive and seek justice. So it, it is hard. Um, but we saw what kind of a high priest we have when I read the text from Hebrews. Because it's not a high priest who doesn't get it. He's suffered everything and then gone to be with the Father. So I'm not raising a bar in what I'm saying and making it impossible. I'm raising a bar and saying, in Christ Jesus, we are enabled to do all that. We are forgiven in Christ Jesus. We live in Christ Jesus. So what sounds impossible, actually, over time, in a process that we are right with God now, in other words, justified, as the Bible says, but we are continuously in a process of being made more and more holy, sanctification. So as God works with us, having this great high priest who, was, who took on humanity and resides now in the throne room of God, what sounds a tall ask is actually quite possible. Now, to move to um, the, uh, the question of um, salvation, to move to the question of forgiveness this time from God to us, as happened in the case of this woman. And it's, it's interesting how, um, how Jesus leaves it, the last, the last words he utters in that uh, interaction. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. So I will look at two aspects quickly. Um, the faith and how do we have peace with God. So first of all, to know that we need salvation, we must know that at some level we fall short, to use Paul, of the glory of God. We fall short of the standard of God. Um, sin, which is what's being wiped away in Christ Jesus, is missing the mark of God, amartia. So if you had a dartboard and you're aiming at the center, it's missing the mark and hitting the wall. That's basically um, the sin. You are never missing the mark. And we even find the Apostle Paul, whether talking about himself or whether talking as a representative of humanity, so whether he's talking about a generic human or whether he's talking about himself, um, he says in, uh, in Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. For I don't understand what I am doing. For I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good, but now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin living in me. So he's seeing the need for a savior. He's essentially saying, look, we, we, um, uh, we need to be reconciled with God. And he 
draws this out in 2 Corinthians 5 when he actually expressly says, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So he's, he knows the state he's in and he knows what Christ has done. And elsewhere in Ephesians, he says, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we ask sort of the last sentence, Jesus' last words in that scene in Luke are now beginning to be theologically addressed by Paul. He is um, he's trying to get to grips with it, and he's amazed at what... Uh, what has gone. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. We see glimpses of it, uh, where in Psalm 32, uh, David says, blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin, or to use another way, that the Lord will never impute sin. Now we come into the New Testament, and why, why do we see that David can say that in Psalm 32? Because Paul then says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access into this grace in which we now stand. So there's a shift. The Lord is not counting, the Lord is not imputing the sin on us because he's imputed it on Christ. And so he that was not sin became sin so that we now reflect the righteousness of God back to God. So he sees, uh, if you're... If you project a certain light and you filter that light out, that light being sin, and God is viewing through the filter, he's seeing completely clean. And that filter is Christ. So if we stand in the grace of Christ through faith, that filter is applied to the color of sin, and God is seeing whiter than white. And that is essentially what's gone on. So that woman, the sinful woman, as with other stories, the contrite publican and various other stories that often people come face to face with Jesus, the contrite who puts their faith in Jesus walks out in the eyes of God the Father, sinless through what Christ Jesus in the time of the Gospels was about to do and for us has already done. So let's look at that amazing outpouring of love that that woman gave, proving that she had already been forgiven. So as we go out, we love God, because just as Paul said, if Paul himself was speaking on our behalf, saying, what a sinner I am, but then at the very same breath, he knows that he's reconciled with God through Christ. Let's love the one who reconciled us through himself to God, and now, as our great high priest sits there, as Hebrews put it in the text I read at the outset, advocating on our behalf, and, key in that passage, compassionate, because he gets it, because he had, at one time, been one of us. Thank you.